welcome to She Thinks, a podcast where you're allowed to think for yourself. I'm your host, Beverly Hallberg, and on this episode, we are discussing the United Nations, which is timely since the 74th session of the UN General Assembly gathered this week in New York City. Joining us to give us her thoughts on how it went is Claudia Rosette. She's also going to explain the background of the UN and whether or not it's been an effective body since its establishment in 1945. Before we bring her on, though, a little bit about Claudia. Claudia is a foreign policy fellow with Independent Women's Forum and an award-winning journalist who has reported over the past 37 years from Asia, the former Soviet Union, Latin America, and the Middle East. She is widely credited with groundbreaking reporting on corruption at the UN, and she has contributed to numerous publications, including the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. She also makes frequent appearances on TV and radio and has appeared before six U.S. Senate and House committees and subcommittees to testify on such topics as UN corruption and reform and the Iran-North Korea Strategic Alliance. Claudia, such a pleasure to have you on today. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. And I, first of all, want to let everybody listening know that you are joining us from Hong Kong today. Of course, Hong Kong has made a lot of news over the protests that are going on there. First of all, what are you seeing on the ground? And what did you make of the president's speech this week in which he referred to China and Hong Kong? Uh, President Trump did a good thing in saying that uh, the U.S. is watching very closely how China is dealing with Hong Kong. Um, I'd love to hear him say much more along those lines. It was a good thing to do in front of on a world stage. Um, what's going on on the ground is the confrontation between people who want free elections here, and that would be a huge part of the population of a city of seven and a half million, and the tyranny that is the government of China and its puppet chief executive here. That showdown continues to go on. This is it's going in, uh, this has been the 16th week, and the government has given really nothing of substance, and the protesters are not backing down. So it's quite a confrontation that's going on, and I would actually say Hong Kong has been on the front lines of the showdown of our century right now between tyranny and freedom. Uh, playing out in a lot of graffiti and protests on the ground at the moment. And when you think about how long this protest has gone on, and obviously they think the whole idea of being extradited to China is a big deal, even though the Chinese government and even their own leadership in Hong Kong wants to tamp down those fears that there's any issue with that. It seems like the people really know what's at stake. If they continue to protest, do you think they have a chance of winning this battle? It's a very hard battle to win. They're up against the government of China, which next Tuesday will celebrate 70 years in power, the ruling Communist Party, which has been responsible for the deaths of millions and the repression of the world's most populous country since it took power. Um, so will they prevail? It seems that's very hard to see how that works. Uh, and at the same time, if they can simply stave off the encroachment on their freedoms, that will be something that buys them more time. Now, the thing that triggered this, this threat to, uh, by their chief executive, who was appointed by Beijing, uh, her name is Carrie Lam, her proposal to pass a law 
that would allow extradition to China, which would have led them naked to the Chinese system of so-called justice, which isn't a system of justice. It is law as a tool of repression by the Communist Party, not as a tool of justice. Uh, that has been finally, after months of protests, that the chief executive said she would withdraw it. But uh, the reason that the protests flared up to such an extent is it was one more piece. It was a big, bad piece, but of this gradual, not so gradual, of this erosion of Hong Kong's freedoms. I uh, over since China took charge of Hong Kong in 1997, since the British handed it over to China, and China promised a 50-year grace period in which the rights and freedoms of Hong Kong would be respected by Beijing. China has been violating that. And uh, the extradition bill, which had never been introduced, that now being withdrawn, doesn't actually address the problems that had already produced protests over many years, especially five years ago. So you have a fundamental problem here, and that is Hong Kong's people were promised free elections. They understand why that's important, why it's important to choose your own leaders, and uh, they want them. And they have received nothing on that score. There has just been zero compromise or concession from the government. So when Trump stood up in front of the General Assembly and called out China for many of its violations of a civilized world order, uh, for its hostility to the free world, and specifically pointed out that we are really watching what's going on in Hong Kong and expect China to honor its treaty promises. Uh, now, that was a good use of the UN stage. That was a good moment. And often we take a look at the United Nations and whether it's talking about how much the U.S. spends in relation to other countries or you talk about whether or not any of the resolutions they pass, since they're not non-binding, are they really effective? I think, why don't we just start with the background of the United Nations in general? You're an expert in this area. When was it created and why was it created? Uh, UN was created in 1945 at the end of World War II. And the the high-sounding, high-minded aim was to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war. Okay, it was supposed to bring peace and prosperity and freedom and all these good things. And from the beginning, it was just profoundly flawed. Uh, these are things that are hard to bring in any case. But it began by admitting to this brotherhood of countries that were supposed to promote things like freedom and individual dignity and peace. Uh, the Soviet unions dictatorship of Joseph Stalin uh, as one of the victors in World War II. That was an alliance of convenience at the time, not an alliance of ideology. And uh, that problem has multiplied ever since. The Soviet Union has collapsed. But the UN is basically, it's not a democratic institution. It is a collective stuffed with dictators uh, where the advantage goes to whoever is willing to exploit the UN system, which fundamentally, once you're accounting to 193 member states, which is the UN, you're not accounting to anybody in the end. It's actually a quite dangerous and rather perverse institution. Well, I even know the UN Human Rights Council is brought up quite often because you have countries where a leader may be running it who, where there are human rights violations in their own country, yet they're supposed to be talking about the human rights of people yeah. across the world. Um, that's one example of just the egregious nature. So do you find that this actually helps 
allow or foster relationships of dictators that treat their people poorly and and foster relationships with other countries and almost lifts them on a, a platform of seeming like a legitimate leader when they're not. So do you think the UN almost gives people legit legitimacy that should never have it to begin with? Oh, of course. Yeah, that's precisely what it does. In fact, when we began really reporting on the UN uh, way back uh, around 2002, one of the things that struck me was this is a clubhouse and a very nice one, a very fancy, expensive one in midtown Manhattan with a great gilded chamber where they speak. And uh, is that it was a clubhouse for dictators um, because they get the same privileges as free countries. They get a seat, they get votes, they get to sit on the boards of important agencies at the UN. Um, you know, one example would be Iran uh, is over and over turns up on the board of the UN's flagship agency, the UN Development Program, which Iran actually chaired in two thousand that board in two thousand nine. Um, you get things like the biggest voting bloc in the General Assembly is has been headed in recent years by Venezuela, which is one of the most disastrously misruled uh, countries on the planet right now with its socialist. Uh, horrible failure. Um, you know, they don't have water or electricity. They're completely dysfunctional. But they're leading this group that's supposed to be involved in advancing development. They they hosted a uh, big meeting there of this voting caucus um, this past uh, summer and was and were praised by, for it by the president of the General Assembly who praised Venezuela for its leadership. I mean, that's a classic slice of what's wrong at the U.N. And I want to take a step back from that as well. You, you talked about the beautiful building that's based in New York, where everybody from across the world comes. What is the investment by the United States, especially in relation to other countries, when it comes to how much money we put into probably just uh, the cost of the building alone, let alone how we fund the U.N. itself? Yeah, it's a multi-billion dollar building. It was renovated um, some years ago, fairly in recent years, uh, at a cost of more than $2 billion. Um, the U.S. usually picks up roughly one quarter of the tab for U.N. projects uh, because the U.N. doesn't have one budget. It has many. And the exact amount that varies sort of how much the U.S. chips in for each thing. But basically... We pay close to one quarter of the cost, and America is one vote in that 193-member General Assembly. So over and over, since the UN was founded, the U.S. not only hosts the UN, provides security for it, and provides provides the biggest share of the money from your tax dollars, uh, more than $10 billion for the last year for which the UN gives consolidated figures. 10 billion out of a 53 billion system-wide UN budget in 2017. That's an enormous amount of money in the hands of an unaccountable collective of governments packed with dictatorships. Okay, but the other thing that the U.S. gives the UN is credibility. You know, we legitimize this outfit that legitimizes dictators because we host it. We keep it on our shores. We pour money into it. We treat it as if it were a very valuable institution. And the unfortunate truth is that it's a an institution that is deeply entrenched, but it very often works on balance to undermine the interests of the United States, the free world, and so on. 
And I want you to bring out some of those. So we, we talked about, first of all, it legitimizes dictators. So that's one problem. It costs us a lot of money. We're spending a lot more than any other country. Tell, tell me, in your opinion, how does the UN undermine America's efforts, um, the, the idea of peace and freedom for all that we desire for everyone in this world? How does the UN specifically undermine that? They, uh, in a number of ways, they twist the definition of freedom, of human rights, and so on. You know, the Human Rights Council at the UN is a magnet for dictatorships which sit on it and then try to redefine human rights, which is one of the reasons they're completely fixated on the only democracy in the Middle East, the country of Israel. They give uh, a lot of these dictatorships, make sure that they get a pass. And uh, this just permeates the UN, the Security Council, which has 15 members, including five permanent members who get to veto resolutions, and that would be three free countries, the U.S., the U.K., and France. These are the victors of victorious powers of World War II. And um, two that are among the world, that are the world's two leading, most powerful, prominent, predatory dictatorships of our time, and as much as the post-World War II era, uh, Russia and China. And in both cases, inherited, which inherited their seats from Russia from the Soviet Union, which collapsed in 1991, China, the original China that belonged to the UN, was the Republic of China, the political, the, the, the China on Taiwan that is now a democracy. Um, they were supplanted at the UN in the early 1970s by when President Nixon made his rapprochement with China, when Mao Zedong's China by the People's Democratic, or, sorry, the People's Republic of China, uh, the PRC, the Communist China, that sits there today. So you have two countries on the Security Council, which make sure that they not only defend themselves, but make sure nothing gets done at the UN that would sort of address the growing threat they pose to the free world. They also run interference for a lot of other countries, fellow dictatorships such as North Korea, uh, where... You see, you see these levels of hypocrisy and abuse, basically. China and Russia have both voted in favor of UN sanctions on North Korea over and over. But they then turn around and violate those sanctions because the way the UN works it is countries are responsible for enforcing their own compliance with UN dictates. So, you know, China can say, yes, we're in favor. They do the horse trading. So the U.S. will in some way reward them for voting in favor of sanctions on North Korea. This is just one example. And then they turn around and flagrantly violate them to China's benefit. Uh, and we end up with North Korea has a nuclear program. China has gotten nice things because it voted in that case with us. And world peace is certainly not served. We're now facing a nuclear armed North Korea. Uh, at the same time, in the General Assembly, which is the 193-member state sort of main assembly of the UN, uh, a lot of these countries just don't vote with the U.S. They vote, uh, uh, they vote along lines that basically break out to supporting un the policies of unfree states that they band together. I mean, the coincidence of voting with the U.S. on important resolutions is very low. Uh, and well, let me jump in here. And yeah, I, I have a question for you on that. So you, you talked about the history of the UN 
it's had it's been flawed and had issues from the start. We might be able to say that maybe there were good intentions behind creating it, even though those were not seen. So when you look at the UN, is there anything positive positive at all to the US or to the ideas of freedom that the UN does bring? Is there anything at all? Well, there's, I wish I could say there's, you know, there are also these wonderful upsides. No, I mean, there are some things they do that are useful and good. If you had a budget of $50 billion a year, you would, you would probably manage to get some bed nets to children in Africa, you know, to help prevent malaria. Right. You'd be able to do something. The question to ask, though, is, is this the best way to be doing it? In other words, all the, the good things that it does, when it goes in on the ground and actually manages to get some blankets to refugees, uh, and it, it is an incredibly cumbersome, corrupt bureaucracy. And there's a huge amount of simply venal financial corruption in there because also they're not very accountable. Um, is, are there other ways that work better? I mean, what we've seen over and over again with, with sort of natural disasters, tsunami relief, for instance, is the UN immediately, the first thing they say is we need money to deal with this, more money, even though they already have tens of billions rolling in every year from other people's tax dollars. Um, and the outfit that usually gets there and actually starts to really help is the United States. And similarly, the UN t- sort of likes to take credit for whatever piece of progress there has been since World War II. Over and over, if you look and ask, well, how did this actually come about? It was the United States. It was not the UN. You know, the UN it was the U.S. that won the Cold War, not the UN, where the Soviet Union sat on the Security Council and blocked anything it didn't like and assembled groups of countries in the General Assembly to vote against the U.S. and the free world. So the answer is, yes, it does some good things, but uh, you, t- you look at something like UNICEF, the UN Children's Agency, and it has been involved in money laundering problems in right. corruption cases. It, it has on its board dictatorships. You take the UN agency for women, UN women, and that has uh, on its board Iran and Saudi Arabia, you know, which are places that are <laughs> were notorious for the mistreatment right. of women. So, so as you're so, talking about all yes, these, these yes, yeah. but yeah, and, and that's like you're saying, yeah, it does good things, but there would, there enough there may be other ways to help in these areas, as you're saying. So the question that I have was so much that we find fault in and the ineffectiveness and the lifting up of dictators. Is there ever, or has there ever been a real push to try to dismantle the UN or is it something that's so entrenched? There's not even that thought that we should get rid of it. It's uh, periodically discussed and then set aside as just impossible. Um, it's sort of like trying to get rid of one of those old communist state companies where you, you know, it's so big that people just don't know how to get rid of it. And the answer with those, and I think maybe the answer with the UN is to simply try and pull it out is really hard. There are so many vested interests and it is so firmly hooked up to the money uh, pipelines from not only the U S but Japan, Germany, um, basically the developed nations, uh, that that's very hard. Um, but what we can do, I think, is encourage any kind of competition from coalitions that are more functional. In other words, at the UN, they want to include everything. So you get 
North Korea, Zimbabwe, Sudan, um, Venezuela, Russia, China, Iran, sitting uh, have seats. They're included as if they were, you know, wonderful contributors to the world order. The functional coalitions that have really done something useful are up to like NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty, North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which really did help hold the line against the Soviet Union during the Cold War. And more of those, anything that sort of diverts our resources, our reliance, our policy into ways of actually addressing problems rather than going to the UN where uh, countries and coalitions that are in opposition to the free world will try and leverage their seats at the UN into concessions from the free world. Uh, anything that goes around that or competes with it is good. So it's not a deep, clean solution, but I think sure. that's the direction to go. The UN needs to become obsolete. Unfortunately, right now, it's, it's a, a real hindrance to the progress of free nations and of freedom in the world. Uh, and it's also very hard to see a way to actually get rid of it. And final question for you, you can I think. start by the, understanding what it is. Sure. Yeah, absolutely, which is why we're thankful that you're on the podcast to give us background on this, because I think there isn't a lot of quality information on the UN. And I want all our listeners to know that you have a great policy focus brief at IWF.org on the UN. So people should go there, go there. If you like what you're hearing today, read more. There's a lot more good information. But I wanted to round out the podcast with probably the most fascinating scenes that we have seen at the UN in quite a while. And that is we had a young girl from Sweden come to the UN to scold the United States, to scold the president, to scold other leaders about the issue of climate change. And one of the things I love about this country is that people can come here and disagree and have the freedom to disagree, which I think is a wonderful thing. Of course, we can have our own critique about whether or not what she is saying is accurate and that's it's reasonable for us to critique back. But I was just curious what, what you made of the whole issue or the whole scene, because many people thought it was quite the spectacle. Yeah, it was quite the spectacle. And well, one of the first things that jumped in my mind was uh, she sailed over on what was supposed to be an emissions-free racing yacht, which sounds very, you know, like a lot of fun. Wouldn't you love to do that at 16? If you, uh, if you actually ask, well, what did it take to manufacture that racing yacht? You get to the real emissions, okay? So the emissions-free stuff, uh, let's, uh, <laughs> that's, that's a nonsense. The only way she, it's, there's really no way to do it emissions-free. You need to use energy. She could have swum. She still would have been emitting it. But, uh, that's just hypocrisy, which at the UN we see all the time. The deeper problem is that uh, what she's doing is basically lecturing the developed world uh, on how they should conform to her vision. This is a classic piece of what's perverse about the UN. And the whole climate change thing is something that the UN has been pushing for years. Uh, the UN does extremely well out of it. And a lot of it's so-called science is highly politicized and extremely questionable. But the UN has these huge budgets. They pump out these reports that are so intricate, nobody could really understand them. So we all think, well, it must be science if we don't understand it. And they've done things like, I love their expedition to inspect the snow level in ski resorts. Again, wouldn't you love to be on that particular excursion? Um, Sounds amazing. Yeah. Like they have climate <laughs> 
Yes, climate meetings to which everyone has flown in in Bali, you know, because you couldn't, while lecturing the rest of us to Skype in and, you know, stay home and those of us who can't afford uh, racing yachts to cross the Atlantic when we want to go to New York, you know, travel back and forth, um, the UN itself, uh, one of the heights of hypocrisy, the head of the UN Environment Program based in Nairobi was forced to had to resign uh, not so long ago when the UN's own auditors discovered he'd spent almost half a million dollars jetting around in less than two years at your tax taxpayer expense on flying around for his, some of that apparently for his own pleasure, you know, in and out of Paris and Oslo. Again, that's the UN. On the issue of what's going on with the climate, uh, something that um, this young woman who is lecturing us all and exactly how she'd like us to live didn't mention, and the UN doesn't mention, is that one of the reasons where they were all sitting there in such comfort, able to fly in to New York City and enjoy all the amenities, one of the reasons for tremendous progress that has lifted hundreds of billions of people, you know, into better standards of living and so on, is precisely the freedom, the capitalism, the things that are damned under this climate change sort of scheme that she applies to everything, are damned as carbon emitters. You know, my God, they use energy in order to get there. By this measure, the most virtuous countries on the world are the ones that are poor and produce almost nothing. Now, the problem there is, why are countries poor? Their people are capable of doing what other people are capable of doing. It's not that there's some group of people that's just born to be poor. Actually, mankind generally and womankind has tremendous potential. The problem is how are they ruled? And when you look at why are countries poor, uh, it's because almost always the answer is misruled by dictators. Again, it's that classic right. problem at the UN. And exactly. here in the climate change scheme, and it was, the idea is that these sort of sainted countries are the ones that have, where the, the governments have done terribly for their own people, have not allowed their own people to prosper. Uh, and they come to the UN and they're praised because they don't admit much. <laughs> and, and further to that, how has mankind adapted to the climate, which has always been changing? You know, my own view is I don't think we actually understand what's going on with the climate. It's immensely complex. But we do understand this much. The way, or we should, I think, the way that human beings have adapted to climate, and we live in extremes all the time, you know, from people who live above the Arctic Circle to the equator, is invention, creativity. We, in, we discovered fire, we made clothes, we built buildings, we invented all sorts of ways of dealing with weather and the climate. You'll notice that in, you know, one of the, again, classic example, North and South Korea, when there are bad floods, when the weather is terrible and the great floods come in, in North Korea, people starve and die. And in South Korea, just the other side of the 38th parallel, they're usually okay. Well, Claudia, we so appreciate you joining us today and also all your work and, and reporting on behind the scenes what goes on at the UN, giving us the history and also pointing out so many of the egregious aspects of the UN. I look forward to reporting on Hong Kong. Do stay safe with your stay safe while you're there. And thank you so much for doing this, even though you're on the other side of the world. So thank you so much. 
pleasure talking with you. Thank you. And everybody be well. And thank you all for joining us. Again, do check out Claudia's work, specifically her policy focus brief on the UN at IWF.org. I also wanted to let you know of a great podcast that you should subscribe to in addition to She Thinks. It's called Problematic Women, and it's hosted by Kelsey Buller and Lauren Evans, where they both sort through the news to bring stories and interviews that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, that is, women whose views and opinions are often excluded or mocked by those on the so-called feminist left. Every Thursday, hear them talk about everything from pop culture to policy and politics by searching for problematic women wherever you get your podcasts. Last, if you enjoyed this episode of She Thinks, do leave us a rating or review on iTunes. It really does help. And we'd love it if you shared this episode. And do let your friends know where they can find more She Thinks episodes. From all of us here at Independent Women's Forum, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.